Hello and welcome to Contra. My guest this episode is Stephanie Arnold. Stephanie and I talk about homelessness and the opioid epidemic in general, as well as some issues that are specific to the Victoria region. Stephanie has a master's degree in political science from McMaster. Yes, that is a McMaster master's. And she's working on her second master's, not McMaster's, in the social dimensions of health at the University of Victoria. Her thesis is on the intersection of culture and policy and how the outcomes affect uh, illegal substance users. Hey, Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Greg, thanks for having me here. Yeah, no problem. Um, So I'm excited to have you on because as soon as I moved to Victoria, one of the first things I saw walking to work was uh, Tent City set up there. So there was like, like I've never heard so much ado about 20 people, um, which I think kind of like, you know, has a lot to do with what we're talking about, addictions and that cycle of homelessness and addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, have you have you ever worked with those people or worked heard about those issues? Um, yes. When I so I moved to Victoria last September um, and that I, I think that's when it started to pick up. I know it happened a little bit also um, in August, but one of the uh, women who were on my thesis committee was really involved with um, Tent City and kind of getting the message out there as to why Tent City has happened. So while I don't work directly with that population, I've done a little bit of organizing um, with some people who do work more directly with them. She's a a nurse, but um, she works at the university as a professor. Um, So she does a lot more kind of frontline work um, and engagement. Okay. Yeah. As kind of like an advocate? Yes, 100%. Like she practices a lot of, um, I guess there's a bit of attention in the academic community when you're working with individuals who are facing such adverse life circumstances. It's a little ethically comparable to just do research without actually being present in the fight for like their liberation and better treatment of these individuals. So, Oh, interesting. Yeah. So what we did was um, it was called like, I think a, a letter bomb where we had all written like a little opinion pieces for the time colonists and just various different um, news sources in Victoria. And the point of that was to explain why 10 cities pop up. So the one that I wrote, we looked at, um, why shelters are ineffective, right? I've heard a lot of people say things, um, people who have been in shelters say that they're almost as bad as prisons when it comes to um, violence that individuals face. Um, the sleeping conditions, often it's just a mat on the floor. So while shelters do exist, sometimes they don't give that sense of hominess that's super important to an individual's well-being. Um, and sometimes you can get that if you have a tent, especially because how shelters are usually set up is that you have to leave in the morning, right? So then you take all of your stuff, you pack it up, and you mm. leave. But when you have a tent and you also get to choose the people who are in the tent city with you, um, I think it's a lot more equivalent to the closest thing to a home that someone can get when they are homeless. Well, I can totally see that. And I mean, I think that's why it's so polarizing because I look at, you know, you look at a shelter and not very many people look at it, like walk by a homeless shelter or one of these like halfway houses and think like, dang, I really wish I was riding it out there. Mm -hmm, Totally. And I don't walk by Tent City and wish I was there, but 
there's an aspect of that of simplicity and people associate camping with good times especially in victoria where all, there's a lot of outdoorsy people mm-hmm. so there's that a lot of resentment i think towards people that are taking up a public use space and making it their home because it's i think people feel like it's like freeloading and they get that resentment towards those people totally um and that is from at least my research uh and standpoint a lot to do with misunderstandings of how people become homeless. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a moralistic or like a, a laziness attribute in somebody. There's various structures that um, contribute, like social structures that contribute to people not having a place to stay. Um, so even today I was actually talking to um, a social work colleague and we were saying just um, how absolutely like privileged people are to grow up with books in their homes. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't have a strong background and there are quite high rates of queer homeless people because of that, like if you don't have that f- familiar black background, that'll um, kind of support you and that support network, you tend to, um, I sort of lost my train of thought. You were talking about how the like increased incidence of the queer population in homelessness Oh, yeah. Um, So essentially, um, you know, people do still face discrimination by their parents if they are queer. Um, And that happens a lot for younger people who end up, you know, you you need to leave because it's a violent and um, unsafe environment for you. Um, But yeah, so a, a lot of broader things that people don't really, you know, people who aren't queer aren't going to think of these things, right? Because they come from loving homes, they're not going to consider what it would be like to have your parents reject you based on like your identity and who you want to be. Um, yeah, I mean, I think for all these things, it's it's a spectrum, right? Like there's certain things in society and things in families which would make somebody much more likely to go down that route. And then pe- different people have different resiliencies from genetics or family background that they would be more resilient to a situation like that because there's lots of people who are kind of excommunicated from their family that have done really well but those are like risk factors i I guess is what i'm saying yeah i mean it also plays into um you know the intersection of of your identity um where you were socially located so i mean a a black gay woman is going to have a lot harder of a time getting back on her feet than let's say a white gay man just because of they're facing other forms of discrimination racism um misogyny homophobia as -hmm. opposed to let's say just homophobia right okay yeah i've heard of that i've definitely heard of that train of thought before um so how do you think people who are homeless are treated in society like how do you think in general we view them and how do you think we um, like how, how should that change or how, how can we make that better? I think a, a, a language to understand um, more systemic factors, so understanding intersection, intersecting um, pieces of someone's identity, um, your comment, like the first question about how are they treated in society, how are they viewed? I mean, I definitely feel like there is that idea that they are freeloaders, that they just want things that they're not... Um, entitled to because of the idea of productivity and needing to work for a living. I personally am somebody who don't think 
that I think even if you don't have a single dollar to your name, like you shouldn't have to be homeless. You should be able to have, even if you don't have the intent to work, whether it's able-bodied or not. I mean, recently I saw something about, um, they were going to have housing for artists. Mm -hmm. Uh, and someone made the comment about like, oh, so basically this is just for homeless people. Right. And it's like, Ideas of productivity are, I think, very narrow nowadays because you can look at somebody who is being productive in their their day of their daily life and isn't a freeloader because, you know, I think being an artist is a, a career of merit. But also, homeless people's regular activities of canning um, or sex work or even selling drugs are really strategic um, kind of maneuvers in their daily life to survive on the street and i don't think i think we have this kind of idea what a productive person looks like and those aren't taken into account and thus they're kind of tossed off as three freeloaders but if you see a homeless person collecting cans they're probably they've been doing it all night it's hard work takes a lot of time Mm -hmm. um and being able to hold a job is quite frankly a privilege i mean especially in today's society when low like menial labor jobs are incredibly low wage and it's been you know commented on that it's really difficult to have um like even three or four of these low income jobs and still be able to support yourself or your family yeah yeah i think where i probably differ a little bit is when you're talking about productivity like if somebody is unable to produce, then in terms of like add value to the market, like in collective society, then that's where I see like charity come in. And, and if that's through government or through private, totally understandable. But I do struggle if somebody's unable to, if they're unable, if they're sorry, if they're able to, yet unwilling. And like I definitely see being an artist as a, you know, career of merit as well like for sure I, I have art in my house but i think if people aren't buying your art and you're not like that's what the free market is for in some regards like you know if if you're not what you're producing people aren't buying the subjective evaluation of it is low enough such that maybe you know you maybe you should keep doing it but maybe you need to find some other way to to bring you know, sustenance to yourself, right? Especially if you're physically able to, that's where I guess I would struggle with. Totally. That a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of people think that way. It's just really difficult for me to be in line with that type of thought when I see banks and automobile companies, you know, the subjective evaluation is that people are not buying their, um, their commodities and yet they are still bailed out. So this idea of these large mm. corporations getting bailouts, but we can't, and I'm not going to call it a bailout for an individual, but can't support an individual, um, even if, you know, they're an artist and no one's buying their work, Yeah, um, is a little too conflicting for me. Well, I, I mean, I, I definitely agree with part of that. Like, I think bailouts are... Um generally a bad idea right like you're propping up a failing company i would say that they exist because people have bought their products and have felt that there's value to their products at least in the past um whether it's a bank or, or auto company so they they have at some point provided value i i 
I think that we need to let these like large pillars of industry fail to make space for people who can do it more efficiently. Like maybe the electric car would have been accelerated if if some of these large automa- automakers failed, or maybe we'd have more efficient Japanese cars, or or whatever it could be. Like maybe smaller startups would have taken the place of these you know these giants that were bailed out. And similarly to with with banking in in the U.S., but I think it's a bailout. That being said, it's it's like a one time measure, and I think a lot of Canadian social programs, from my understanding of it, they're kind of built around almost like the bailout structure. It's that like we're going to give somebody the tools and resources to allow them to become productive as much as possible. Like even if somebody's severely physically handicapped, generally they want to enable that person to contribute in some way. And that person will find meaning in their life through that contribution um, rather than just continually supporting them. Cause that would be even worse in the industry. If, if there was a car company that was so atrocious, they not only needed a bailout, but they needed like consistent support for the remainder of the existence of that that auto company. I understand that in terms of talking about automobile companies, I just don't think that individuals who need consistent support should be abandoned. But this also speaks to, I think, like a larger, um, just, I would say, difference in our perspective, Mm -hmm. whereas, like you've mentioned, you know, things like charity. And that means that the care for these, or like at least how you perceive the care and support for these individuals is an act of charity as opposed to what I would say is um, like a, a basic human right. Mm-hmm. So one of the the principle of harm reduction, and I consider myself a harm reduction researcher because I'm more interested in how um, ideas of drug use shape public policy as opposed to studying substance use itself. Obviously, those greatly overlap, so I do study both. Um, that being said, though, the the principle is to meet an individual where they were at and kind of stay with them as long as it takes to get them wherever they need to go. And it doesn't exactly look at um, getting someone off drugs um, per se. I mean, I've obviously studied harm reduction within a drug use setting. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other forms of harm reduction, like seatbelts are harm reduction, but for yeah. the sake of this conversation... Um, I think it's important to, if you expect somebody to change like how how they're being or how they're operating within society immediately, it comes across as like this very coercive and people can pick up on your dissatisfaction with how they are as mm-hmm. opposed to being present. And another, again, reason that I think it's important to continue to do this is because I don't see things like homelessness and um, drug use as an individual problem. <clears throat> I conceptualize it as the result of um, personally, like more income inequality in the past 40 years than before. Um, it's people who have like a lack of, of meaning, I would say, in their life. This is not everybody, but I think mm-hmm. a large portion. And I also think it's a bit of a myth that there's, you know, people out there who can totally work and just don't do it, you know, like they're completely capable, but they're just like sitting around like humans do enjoy labor. There's just kind of this disconnect from our, our meaning, um, that we ascribe to, to labor as opposed to, um, like I wouldn't say what would be necessary for, to keep somebody engaged in their work. Yeah, for sure. I think that's like where kind of like maybe our fundamental ideologies 
you know, differ. It's just like the, the lens in which we view it from in that. I think that like the more conservative way to look at things is like from what's possible financially and that keeping in mind that we're in an open system where our economic power um, as a country and as a nation or as a, as a city can be challenged by outside forces. Um, whereas then the opposite is that we have a certain amount of wealth and excess right now and we can, on, you know, on the more liberal side and we, that can be redistributed more fairly, which is true. Like both are, both are true. I think like the, the existential threat is always like what can come from the outside and what imbalances can we impose upon ourselves from within that will un- destabilize the system that we have. Um, and that's like, and I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I think that's just kind of like where our viewpoints might conflict a little bit, but I don't want to spend all day like can, yeah. can, talking about, you know, liberal versus conservative ideas. But um, I kind of, I wanted to hear more about the, like the policy of like, cause in my mind, this is where I imagine we'll both completely agree. I think all drugs should be legal. I think I can't understand why we'd make meth illegal. Like people do meth. It obviously causes them harm in, in most cases, whether it's the drug or the side effects of that lifestyle. Like, why do we want to make that person a criminal on top of everything? I can understand why, you know, if we decide to make meth illegal, then you have a meth dealer who's taking advantage of children and all these, you know, terrible things that I suppose meth dealers probably do, or at least some of them. Um, I don't know any meth dealers that take advantage of children, but... (laughs) No, um, I mean like selling to underage kids and stuff like that. Yes. I don't know too many of them either, but... um, But you know what I mean? I, I, I can see... I don't see the point of, of making drugs illegal. I, I don't, and that to me is like, you know, as far as that's like a libertarian idea as well as a very liberal idea. That's where we'd maybe have some like really common ground. Yeah, totally. Um, And even like, so when you start saying like, you know, you're using meth and that causes you harm, it's really not meth that is harmful. Mm-hmm. Meth is actually, I mean, I've never done methamphetamine. I've mm-hmm. done amphetamine derivatives like dexedrin and vivans and i personally absolutely love them i don't have a prescription for them and i Mm -hmm. buy them off whoever has a prescription for them i'm I'm totally fine going on record saying this (laughs) um it's great for studying uh it's great during my depressive episodes when it's hard for me to do things uh amphetamines have a very um i almost i want to say popular history of being prescribed to housewives um they were, I mean, domestic labor is exhausting and a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. So when women were complaining about, you know, fatigue, as well as I think it was also used for hysteria, but um, they would be prescribed an amphetamine derivative. Um, Soldiers in World War II were given amphetamines. Yeah, wasn't it like Japanese fighter pilots? Wasn't that? Oh, it was, I'm pretty sure it was every country that was just Mm -hmm. like giving their, their soldiers this, it's an extra edge. Um, who else? Yeah, actually, I saw a clip on YouTube of Hitler. Apparently, he was tweaking on meth at some oh, like, that sports guy game. Loved meth. Yeah. Yes, from just from what I've heard, Hitler used a lot of meth. Hmm. Um, I don't know if it's exactly meth, but it was amphetamines. But okay, um, yeah. well, I was asking you about like the. I think before the podcast, you had mentioned something about like the history of drugs mm. being illegal and some of the like the policy that's been created around that, which is, which has resulted in a lot of people been a, being alienated because oh, not yes. only do they have, 
you know, addiction issues, but now they're a criminal on top of that and they can't maybe seek the resources that would be available to you if you were just an alcoholic. Yeah. Um, and then also what, like that, that does ties into what we were talking about, um, with amphetamine, but kind of criminality and deviance is really circumstantial. Um, because obviously if it was totally okay to prescribe people, I mean, also people get amphetamine derivative derivative today if you have ADHD, right? So mm-hmm. that isn't in self criminal. Um, but when people, you know, use meth for other reasons, a very popular reason is when people become homeless um, for um, whatever reason had gone there in the first place, uh, they use meth to stay up at night because if you're sleeping on the streets, you get harassed by police officers. So it's important to be awake and vigilant. You also get robbed, but <laughs> it's important to be awake and vigilant. So, um, you know, you don't, you can avoid that. You don't want mm-hmm. to. You want to minimize your interactions with the cops as much as possible. But um, yeah, the origins of drug life, I'm not exactly sure when it comes to amphetamines, but um, most, like every drug law that I can think of is just because of racism, straight up racism. Um, There was a guy named Harry Anslinger uh, in the US in the, so prohibition has only been around for about a hundred years. Um, but he was convinced that people of color, especially African-Americans, were using drugs more than white people. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not entirely sure if he even believed that himself or he just wanted to create a really strong association between people of color and drugs and then outlaw drugs in order to harm communities of color. Um, but either way, the and reason... you think he just had racist motives for harming Oh, he straight up of, said it. Yeah, there's it's like on record that uh, Johan Hari wrote a book called Chasing the Scream. And I think like it was just this wonderful journalistic account of the origin of drug laws. There's also a book about Canadian drug laws called More Harm Than Good that um, I like because it's like a third of the size of Chasing the Scream. Okay. Um, but yeah, essentially he so he, it's like, he it was called cannabis. He changed the name. I'm not sure if it was him, if it was the borough of narcotics that he had created to um, marijuana because it sounded more Mexican and he wanted to associate cannabis with Mexicans. Um, So what he did was create, he basically was a master of fake news and he came up with all these um, like newspaper articles about, you know, Mexicans in particular eating um, these like eating cannabis leaves or smoking cannabis and then going crazy and killing people and all these like horrific stories, which we all know now, if you smoke weed, you don't have the urge to get off the couch, let alone commit mass murder. Um, But then what I got really interesting was when there was um, a a white kid who was known to smoke weed and had killed his entire family. He was also known to have schizophrenia, which I think probably Mm -hmm. played a bigger role in that incident. Um, but then the rhetoric kind of started to center around um, the harms that these drugs can do to white people, right? So um, both heroin and cannabis were banned in the United States um, for fear of the social harms of interracial mixing. So people dating people of other races. Um, and obviously, whatever the states does is modular for every single other nation. Um, and he, Harry Anslinger himself has been referred to as a bureaucratic genius, meaning that he was able to um, 
And I often think about this when, when I read this this part about how can someone manipulate the government so much to get away with, you know, changing all, all of these these laws, changing people's like ideas, stoking these fears. And then I think immediately about Donald Trump, because, you know, even though his race-based panic has no merit, so many people believe it, right? So like these things are totally possible and it's still mind-blowing to this day. Um but essentially he is how he got um or like that is how he got to influence the UN and change drug laws internationally. In Canada, there are similar origins. So like the actual But even first- in like non white countries, like China, for example, and Singapore, they have extremely strict drug laws. Totally. Um and I think that just speaks to the reach of the ideas that drugs were harmful because you have to remember, like before this guy came along um people you could buy like opium in the pharmacy and people reg- and again you could be prescribed amphetamines and people happily drank um like coca leaves yeah and- i heard i heard what i heard is that like i didn't i don't know the names and, and dates associated as well as you do but that people would regularly lose use cannabis like in you know the midwest and they were aware of marijuana from the propaganda but they didn't actually know that the thing where they were lobbying to be illegal was also the thing they were enjoying recreationally because of the oh. name change. Wow, I had yeah. no, I didn't even know that. Um, but yeah, so I mean, it speaks to, I think, the, the reach that he had on the world. But also at the same time, it's not just the reach about like anti drugs; it's also how people associate them with criminals. So Nixon had the Southern strategy where his advisor came out years later, being like, "We can't outlaw." people to be black or anti-war, but we can associate these groups with drugs and they make drugs illegal. Mm -hmm. So it's more drugs being weaponized to punish like anti-war and colored communities. Yeah. So that's like, yeah. And I've, I've heard a lot of that similar, those similar ideas. And so now that I, I mean, maybe you disagree with it, but I think our societies are generally, not racist these days like and i mean not to say there's not racist people there certainly are many of those but like nobody in parliament is gonna stand up and you know back up marijuana law by using you know racism they're never gonna say well white people and black people are gonna you know end up spending more time together if we make cannabis legal you would be surprised (laughs) well I, i would be really surprised if somebody in parliament stands up and talks about overtly talks about racism in that that manner um did you see maxime bernier bernier um on the debates no and i didn't watch them what did he say uh he was he was just quite overtly racist blaming a lot of problems on immigrants um but no you point to a very also if you say immigrants that said it's a little bit different i'm and i'm not you know what kind of immigrants he's talking about they're not people from europe (laughs) i suppose so but i think there's also there's like a cultural there's a cultural difference from various countries so i I do think it's different, and I'm not saying it's good to be prejudiced overtly against non-white immigrants. I think that's a bad thing, but I think it is different to say like black people and immigrants because one is a cultural difference and one is a physical difference. We can go into a whole other podcast about <clears throat> why I don't think you know there is much of a difference between the groups. I can understand like where you're coming from, obviously, because, you know, they're coming in from a different country. So you see them as um, somewhat of an other, but to focus more back on um, 
the origins of drug laws and the problems associated with race-based groups, um, to use an immigrant example, actually, mm-hmm. it was um, the reason that opium was banned in Canada was because Chinese immigrants were um, smoking, not, were they smoking opium? Yeah, they were smoking opium in opium dens, and um, which, you know, was completely fine. No one was going like off the rails. There was no real social harm other than apparently it lures in, you can't see this, but like finger quotation marks, it lures in white women to want to sleep with them. And again, you couldn't have that. So um, that was one of the bans or like the one of the reasons for um, banning opium. However, white people were still allowed to access it. (laughs) What what decade was that? That's like the... Oh my God, I want to say the 30s. Yeah. That sounds like the least sexy place in the world, an opium den in in the 30s. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think... I don't think anyone was going in there. I mean, possibly for sex work. Um, but I think we can agree that these policies aren't exactly favorable towards sex workers either and not the type of women they were interested in protecting, unfortunately. Um, yeah. So, and I guess yeah. to bring it back to like current day, I mean, now that we, we oh, yes, all these, prefer, all these things yeah. are, uh, are illegal um, and people who use them are, you know, de facto criminals. How do you think that? shapes their options for for getting out of that you know spiral well i mean people are definitely afraid to seek treatment when they're labeled a criminal right Mm -hmm. um so treating these individuals like a criminal when i think it's actually like drug addiction like problematic consistent substance use i think is a very creative way to deal with immediate problems within your life that there are little support for Mm -hmm. um but again, that behavior is criminalized within certain contexts, unfortunately. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, like certainly drugs are an effective, at least temporary coping mechanism. Like we are, you know, people, if you have anxiety or you have, you know, problems paying attention, you're, you're prescribed amphetamines. But if you don't have um, to, you know, you kind of use that, um, the privilege of having a family doctor and having that social social support network and you look to like self-medicate, then of course you you become a criminal right away. Um, mm-hmm. So if somebody like, if I was addicted to meth or whatever, heroin, um, any of these drugs, and I just went to the hospital and said, listen, I'm, I'm addicted to this, I'm worried I'm gonna overdose, what would happen to me? Um, you would usually get, I want to say pamphlets for, you know, they're often abstinence geared treatment. Um, mm-hmm. Ideally, someone would try to get you to a doctor that would give you um, methadone or suboxone. These have them, their own problems. Um, these are like opioid replacement therapies. Like, I don't think you get high from them, but you use them to keep off withdrawal. Okay. Unfortunately, they don't really work for everybody. A lot of people don't experience um, like zero withdrawal on them. They they still withdrawal is very uncomfortable. Yeah, and I suppose whatever. of course this whatever symptom that made them take those drugs in the first place has not subsided. No, like whatever and you're pain not or fixing the, the structural is. issues of like you know like getting someone into a withdrawal management program isn't giving them a home so you can come out sober but you're you don't have a home although Mm -hmm. unfortunately being sober is a prerequisite for a lot of um, housing programs which is very difficult 
mainly also because housing programs don't give you the best housing and not something you really want to be sober for. Um, but that being said, again, I, and ideally they would give you um, clean needles if you were to continue to use. But I think where the problem lies is that people are even healthcare practitioners aren't giving you both of these options. So they're not going to, you know, point you in the direction of what we would call abstinence-based recovery, as well as harm reduction in fear of harm reduction efforts like syringe exchanges um, or giving you a you know, pamphlet to the local safe consumption site. Um, they fear that that kind of enables that behavior that like maybe you've overdosed and you've, you know, you've had this moment where you're like, I don't want to do this anymore. If you give you needles, they think that you're just going to keep doing it. I mean, chances are you probably already had that um, idea about how harmful, you know, this is for you if you wanted to stop yeah, to people, begin with. Most people aren't stupid. They, they, they can look at themselves And yet in they're the treated yeah. very stupidly, but... Um, mm. So yeah, I think there definitely is still more of a, a prominent approach to getting people immediately off of drugs, which again is not super helpful when you don't solve the more distal reasons for why people are on drugs in the first place. Hmm. And who's like you think it's who do you, who's, who's the responsibility do you think it is to solve that problem of their like if you know Bob is uh, homeless and is addicted to drugs like. <clears throat> Where do you think the onus lies on getting Bob off drugs and getting him into a home and getting him financial support and enough that he can pursue some meaningful hobbies and interests and the kind of things that like fulfill a human being, maybe have a family and all that? Um, I would definitely place that responsibility on um, the state, mainly because I feel like a lot of addiction is not even I feel like it's well documented that. Um, a lot of substance use disorder is caused by a lack of meaning from increased social inequality. So, I mean, let's look at an example. Let's say Bob was indigenous, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's obviously a huge presence and overrepresentation of indigenous people who use drugs because we see that colonialism and that um, severance from their culture and the land and their family so deeply impacts them and is a huge form of intergenerational trauma. I, again, so that I think that's a more obvious example where it, like I would say okay. clearly that is the government's responsibility to provide various um, tools. I also I still think it's the government's responsibility in every case because I think what we're really missing is a comprehensive drug education. I mean, just say no does not work. I'm not sure what kind of drug education you received as a kid, but yeah, my thing. message was yeah, very clear. No. Just don't totally. do drugs, yeah. um, which we know doesn't work. So again, there's like, you know, this state education that isn't giving people the proper tools to deal with what they're going to experience later on in life. Um, mm -hmm. I also think that there's tons of social resources, like welfare resources that have been increasingly cut back in the past 40 years that are contributing to this lack of meaning. Um, and there's a really awesome study. Have you heard of the Rat Park study? No. Uh, so essentially this psychologists at UBC had two rat cages and one was, um, you know, just kind of barren and had cocaine water and regular water in it. And he put mm, the rats in there. I did hear about this one. Oh yeah. yeah. This is good. Keep going though. Yeah. Um, and you know, they loved the cocaine water and, um, they drank it to a point of death where they ignored other things. But then mm -hmm. he had the rat park, which was a very fun enclosement and they had like 
balls and other rats and all sorts of like fun little things that rats love. Uh, and they didn't go to the cocaine water nearly as frequently. And I think when it comes to humans, those, you know, colorful balls and tunnels and other rats are the, the different social structures that a culture of like late neoliberalism has like really chipped away at. So I would say, um, public funding for like events and all these other things that when conservatives say that they're cutting, they're saving taxpayers money, what they're really saying is we're getting rid of these different, you know, social, um, educational, um, healthcare efforts. I mean, does it, is it less spending? Yes, sure. Mm -hmm. Um, it ends up usually going out into, um, corporate lobbyist pockets, but, um, Again, I think like, I can see a connection between how we scaled back. Usually the corporate lobbyists are actually the ones paying the politicians to do what they want. But <laughs> oh, well, you know what I mean? People <laughs> yeah. who get kickbacks for deregulation of um, or like increased privatization of what, what is at some point social services. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I think politics are a bit more nuanced than that. I, I, I definitely agree that there are like forces that want taxes to be decreased certainly um yeah i have troubles i don't see kind of like the darth vader and the death star and kind of like this this evil ring of collusionists um conspiring to you know keep people down and decrease taxes as much as possible i think there's like a you know yin yang i think there's like some conservative ideas that need to be understood and abided by in society and there's also some liberal ideas and i think like the best way to make decisions is kind of like how we do now having an open well i don't think the discourse is as open as it as it has been in the past but you know if if everything was run by liberals the society would be torn down to its fundamental structures everybody would lose everything and we'd redistribute it completely evenly which would basically make everything grind to a halt and if it was run by conservatives you know everybody that didn't have a certain bare minimum would be completely dispossessed and just forgotten about so i think both of these are like you know a dystopian future right but i think like the having that blend of the two as we do and having different opinions kind of battled out in the court of ideas is you know beneficial um i definitely see how what you're talking about though having these um like i haven't seen the statistics as far as like cuts to these social programs but but yeah you know i, I certainly it's always like hard to trust nostalgia but it seems like when i when I hear people talk about the past, there was like a lot more community events and engagements and stuff like that. Sounds like it sounds like it could be true. I don't, I don't, do you have like, I don't know. I don't want to ask for statistics offhand. That's not fair. But like, um, is that something that's like a documented fact that we've, um, we've decreased funding in those areas? I would say yes, just because um, since the late seventies, early eighties um, with the rise of neoliberalism, a key component of that. I actually don't know what neoliberalism is. Oh, okay. So basically it's like a political economic strategy where you um, deregulate the markets as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and you usually, at least in Reagan and Thatcher's um, time and well, still now, um, they kind of like cut back on social programs. So I'll give you an example, like Ontario works mm-hmm. um, during like just, it was like 95. So a little bit after this, but when it starts to culturally really take hold, okay, um, they really cut down on what they would give people on Ontario welfare. Um, and that was 
in order to liberate them on their self-entrepreneurial spirit. So it's, (laughs) yes, right. So they give you the bare minimum so you can go out there and, you know, get, do the work. But again, that obviously doesn't work for many people who, I mean, disability in Ontario is absolutely nothing. Um, And that is for people who are not able-bodied, let alone people who are, you know, able-bodied, but still need um, resources because, you know, trickle-down economics does not work. It's just, it's been well-documented that Mm -hmm. wealth gets hoarded at the top. I mean, minimum wage has not been increased to the level of like inflation or not taken into, like inflation isn't taken into account when we do these minimum wage increases. So there's just like increased stratification and that's kind of like a core consequence of neoliberal ideology of just opening up the free markets and having government's hands less in Hmm. what would have been kind of more of a taken for granted social welfare. Yeah. I keep, I, this is my fault. I keep pulling us into these kind of like left, right things, which I don't mean to keep doing because we're just going to so keep disagreeing. It's so hard though, yeah. because I think like I'm somebody who conceives as addiction as a result of neoliberal capitalism. Mm-hmm. Like I don't look at it as a brain disease. I don't look at it as a moralistic failing. I think it's a result from a society that is lacking meaning and increasingly um, individually competitive and also... Um, forcing people to work jobs to make other people rich that they derive no real value for, but they have to do it because they have to survive somehow. Mm -hmm. Because like for me and like, I'm not as educated in these things. I, I think what you're saying is correct. However, I just see that it's like a contributing factor. All those, all those things that you mentioned, I think like I am a firm believer in personal responsibility for myself. And as well as I think, you know, if people want to have a meaningful life, personal responsibility is like absolutely a necessity. Like if you read any story, like, you know, whether it's Disney from the Bible, the Quran, like any of these stories where they, you know, the older generation attempts to model good behavior to tell their children, it always is a character that takes personal responsibility. There's never a character that doesn't do anything and just you know, floats through life and is just pushed down by the pressures and succumbs to those pressures and then has a great ending. Like it's always about personal responsibility. I think that's kind of like an ancient human wisdom that's been passed down through, you know, whatever, you know, whatever, you know, in in whatever like system we have at the time for talking to people about whether it's a Christian or um, Muslim or Buddhist, like it's, it's about taking hold of what you're given and doing the best with that, the hand that you're dealt, you know, to use that kind of cliche. That so, is a very, like, entrepreneurial kind of, I would say, like, neo- neoliberal, also conservative position, yeah. right? And and I, 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 I'm also not saying that that's 100% the case. Like, some, like, by the, the hand that you're dealt, it acknowledges that some people have a handful of dog shit cards, like, and it's really tough to play that hand. Like, and I acknowledge that my hand was pretty good. It's not the best far from the worst very very far from the worst i think what i heard is if you make over thirty-two thousand dollars a year you're in the top one percent of the population of the world oh yeah so i am like like in the top one percent so i'm you know great hand of cards i was dealt but to say that somebody that's in a lower level it's a hundred percent the system a hundred percent this that's where I, I i i just disagree because and I'm not saying what percentage, I'm not saying it's 10%, but to deny that there's any personal culpability, that's where I do have a bit of trouble because it's such an absolute statement. I just, I 
I can't believe it to be true, you know? That's totally fair, and I don't want to come off as if I don't think anyone should ever have any personal culpability. I mean, that obviously definitely plays a factor, but I also think it's a neoliberal myth that there's these people out here that don't want to do anything, right? I mean, people are given mm. shitty cards, and if you are, you know, like I, I volunteer at various social service organizations, so I get to interact with people who have problematic substance use or I mean, are you're homeless, taking a lot like, of personal responsibility. Like that volunteering is an amazing service to your community. Most people do not do that. So like, I, I certainly commend you for doing that. And that's, that's, that's amazing. Well, I, um, yeah, I think it, like I am also incredibly privileged. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm fortunate enough to not have to work every waking hour and that yeah. I can spend that time volunteering with people. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said though, I see these individuals as incredibly resourceful. Um, I mean, I think if you, if you know like a lot of these people, I don't think I feel like they blame themselves a lot because they, mm-hmm. they do buy into this idea of almost excessive personal responsibility. Yeah. Um, when they're almost like blind to the broader structures that contribute to these. Mm. And um, so do you think it would be more helpful to them if they, if they felt that it was society that was culpable for their position and not their own actions? That's very, I can't answer that without being, very speculative, but I do think the idea of um, like pulling up your bootstrap kind of thing is a little bit of a fairy tale because given where you're socially located, pulling up your bootstrap probably won't get you very far. Um, But it gets you farther. It has a higher percentage of getting you somewhere than not doing it. I mean, yes and no, pulling up a bootstrap is a literal metaphor, so I can't exactly (laughs) say that it's going to get you farther or not. I do (laughs) think, but the idea behind that narrative is is what i would call a consequence of cultural neoliberalism that anybody can do it and if you can't do it it's your fault don't look at us yeah. because we have nothing to do with it mm-hmm. um, and i think that's in a very obtuse viewpoint I, I certainly don't believe in that i think you know people come from a variety of backgrounds and you know if i look at somebody that's on the street i don't think that oh you know they should have just as much right and i think that's actually why you know you can judge somebody I feel like I can judge somebody harshly that is in a, from a well-to-do family and has a good job and all these like, you know, things that they probably worked very hard for, but still come from, from privilege as well. And they treat waitstaff like garbage. I think we could all agree those people suck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they absolutely yeah. suck. And it's, that's like, that's kind of like, you know, even if they are educated and they, they believe in intersectionality and all these things, if they, they haven't embraced those principles, if they treat somebody you know, at Tim Hortons like garbage because they, they just don't acknowledge that that person might've worked their ass off to get that job at Tim Hortons. And they might be compromising everything they possibly can to work that job, to feed their family or do, do whatever it takes. Like that person might not actually be loafing. Maybe they are, maybe, maybe they're just hanging out smoking weed and picking up three shifts and living in their parents' basement. But you know, you can't assume that just by And just even by if they are, I still think they're worth inherent respect and mm-hmm. dignity. I mean, I, I think agree. a broader yeah. problem is conflating someone's worth with how much they contribute to society under this very capitalist viewpoint of what contribution looks like. Mm-hmm. So that person yeah. could be an artist, but working at Tim Hortons too, you know, but either mm-hmm. way, you don't have to be an artist to no, no. be worthy of respect if you work at Tim Hortons. Yeah. I mean, I, there's certainly systemic issues, but that is actually one thing I like about our society is I think we're actually pretty good. And I shouldn't say good 
like with respect to everything, but good with respect to other societies that, you know, people are treated fairly equally. Like if uh, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company was in a Tim Hortons and punched out a homeless guy, like that guy would go to jail. Like he'd get arrested and, you know, he would have expensive lawyers and he would have all these privileges that come with his wealth to defend himself. But if that was caught on a cell phone, like that guy's in shit. If that happens in India or Africa or name a hundred other countries, that guy might just walk right out of there. He might be able to kill that guy and walk right out of there. So, you know, it, I think it's often easy to like hate our culture because things could be more fair. Like that guy maybe shouldn't have access to those legal counsels. Maybe the homeless guy should have access to that, you know, $200,000 um, a year lawyer and they don't. And that's not fair, but relative to what exists and we should strive for better but that's one thing i do i feel like we need to kind of consider as well is that like we actually have things pretty good and i think like i kind of wanted to circle back to our point about like who who has the responsibility for these people and like where which which you answered which you, you said society and then like where 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 do we need to where can we draw the limits because there there's two places i see potentially that we'd say there'd be limits on what society can do for these individuals. One is just like the economic reality. So there has to be a limit, say if we're in Africa and we're in the Zambezi and somebody's um, to use like a, what we maybe it's like a neoliberal world word would be like, if they're loafing, like if they're not giving their share, we can't actually support that person. We only have enough grain for the people that are bringing water and we just can't afford to take care of that person if they're doing art and nobody's buying their art, we just can't, sorry. And then here, you know, we can, but it still takes away from other programs. Maybe it takes away from healthcare. It takes away from, you know, there's a limited tax base. Um, totally. But, um, yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. I do want to go back to the example of like a CEO punching out a homeless man yeah, uh, and getting arrested. Yeah. I mean, yes, rightfully. That being said, though, homeless people are arrested for just existing in Tim Hortons, right? So I don't think it's that like cut and dry when it comes to like equality. Um, mm -hmm. I have seen a homeless person literally have the cops called on them just for, um, they were trying to drink water to the side of a house. And this woman like four houses down was watching him for like 20 minutes as I was on this like patio having a coffee. Um, and they were filling up their water and drinking it and filling up the water and drinking it. And then she called the police to like tell him to leave. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I mean, he's standing technically on the sidewalk still. So um, I don't think the treatment is exactly fair. But that being said, I'm not an economist, but I do realize that we just bought a $4.5 billion pipeline. And if we can afford a pipeline, I feel like we can probably afford multiple types of social support for mm -hmm. these individuals. Yeah. And that's actually where I totally agree with you because like the pipeline... And I don't, I don't know much about that, but in my understanding of it, the pipeline's an investment. We're, we're putting down some money now to recoup more money later, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that with a lot of these social programs, they're, they're investments, right? Like we, like the reason as a society, we, you know, help children get, you know, better fed, right? Like we have these like school lunch programs or whatever so that these people can get educated do better and then come back and contribute to this society. And I think like from a federal level, that's actually like a fair way to look at things. 
now that's a pretty cruel if that's your if you're a parent that's a really cruel way of looking at things like if you're only feeding your child so that they can make money and take care of you when you're old that's but i think after yet as you expand to a certain point of abstraction you kind of have to start looking at the numbers because the numbers become the limiting factor i'm not good at math so okay (laughs) but no um yeah i do think it's definitely cruel to look at you know, to, to consider people as investments that you're just banking on returning. I don't think that values the inherent worth of an individual, but um, if oh, that's well, how I, I have to I, sell I, it to I, people. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I think you do because you are, you're selling a product, right? At the end of the day, it's like a, it's a, people want to see their tax dollars in, invested wisely and they don't want a program that has an infinite amount of money and very little gain. Even if the gain isn't economic, if it's social, and that's that's kind of like where where I'm looking to kind of find out your views on because you know so much more about these programs and that what not than I do is like where where are the most efficient ones like if if somebody was going to donate money like where would they where would this the programs like have their most economic input because that's something that I think is it's like economics like it's not an unlimited resource I know. Theoretically, we could say like, oh, we can just tax people more and bring that in. And, you know, that's true, but it's probably not going to happen. Like we're, if you look at our tax revenue right now as like X, theoretically, if we tax the hell out of, you know, billionaires and companies, maybe we could reach it to 2X, but it's still only 2X. It's not infinity. Like, so we, maybe we have double the tax base to do these programs, but it's not infinite. So it's still, in my mind, there has to be some measure of like financial balance in that. And that's kind of like, that's, I guess what I'm asking is like, first of all, where do you see the limits? And then where do you see the most effective programs, if that makes sense? Okay. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm personally somebody who's just like, screw the whole economy. It's a made up thing that, you know, we came up with <laughs> that we can change it at any point in time if oh, we I want don't to. Think that's true at all. Um, it's, you know, it's a, it's a human mm. invention and it has tangible impacts, of course, um, and where you can best direct those, the money, money to make those tangible in, impacts. I would say supporting grassroots organizations. Like I mm-hmm. personally don't donate to like, I don't know, free the children because there are people who are local and in that community who know that community the best and know how to serve their needs but that goes back to the belief that or like a belief of medical humanitarianism which is you know people are charity cases as opposed to deserving of healthcare as an intrinsic right of mm-hmm. being alive yeah and i guess like again that as we we have we have so many things we uh we disagree on that it's it's hard to like i i feel like i'm wasting um an opportunity here a little bit because you have so much more experience in this field, but I, I am inserting my opinion so many times on top of yours. So I hope that's, that's okay. No, um, it's super important for me to learn like how people, I mean, at one point I thought like this and things shifted, but you get become so disconnect with those, these like hegemonic ideas of how people should be and how money should be spent that it's important for me to like hear this again, because mm-hmm. it's just, it's almost like foreign to me, even though I encounter it every single day. I also live in a little bit of an echo chamber of people. With academia. Yeah, yeah, who are like-minded and I read criticism of this stuff and it's kind of hard to come back to reality and have a conversation with someone concretely who has these different opinions. 
Okay. So I think it's it's very useful for me completely. Um, just to see, yeah, the the tensions yeah. between the two, and because this is how things get worked out, right? Like people need to have these conversations. Yeah, well, I appreciate that that you're willing to have the conversation, and I know we kind of I kind of explained that to you beforehand. Like, well, we might disagree on a bunch of stuff, so I'm really glad that you came on, and I'm glad we can have this conversation. I think it's it's valuable. To well, me. like yeah. sitting here as a middle class educated white woman, I feel like I don't have so much to lose as a po- as opposed to you know having. Um, I'll go back to my example of a queer woman of color having to sit there and like defend their humanity. I feel like there's a bit of, of a buffer. Mm. Um, okay. Yeah. I wouldn't want to like, I hope I wouldn't offend their humanity, but, or try to diminish it, but maybe some of my views would just in their whatever, however they're manifested. But um, I wanted to get back to your idea or anyway, I'll say something that you probably really will disagree with, which yeah, which is probably everything I've said. But um, yeah, I actually don't really believe rights are real, and that's because something in in my mind, something that can be taken away so easily isn't real if it's not a right. Like if you say we have a right to housing, and then all of a sudden the economy collapses and we are living in a like economic state similar to sub-Saharan Africa. People can talk all about their rights to housing, but it just doesn't exist because nobody can afford it and houses aren't being built, right? We can talk about our right to free speech, which I think is like a fundamental value of our society. I think that's one of the most important things in, you know, the West is that people can freely express express their opinions without fear of, you know, government oppression. But it's not really a right because at any given time, I can't like somebody can stop me from doing it. So I think it's more, I like, I like to look at things more like responsibilities. Like as a society, we have a responsibility to protect people who are speaking their mind as a, as a society, we have a responsibility to provide homes for people, but a responsibility is susceptible to failure, right? Like we can have a responsibility to provide homes for people and fail at that. Whereas if it's a, people have a right to homes, it almost sounds like it's a, it's like a necessity that it it necessarily must be done, whereas it's not being done. Like, so how can it be a right if it's if it's if it's failing? Do you know what I mean um, by that? Yeah, I kind of do. Um, how I want to respond is that I mean, human rights are breached all the time, mm-hmm. all over the globe. That being said, when you kind of you know think past, like I will use indigenous communities as an example, where before colonizers came to this land, people were able to create their own shelters, right? Like you didn't have to go and mm-hmm. register that and like buy a house, right? So anything that we were able to do to take care of ourselves, I got to this point in society, I would give as a human right. So the ability to like feed yourself, to shelter yourself, um, to have the the knowledge, like at least the cultural knowledge and like cultural education to um, heal yourself, like all these things we com- we were able to do at any point in time without having to go through a bureaucracy or the government. Yeah, I I I I still don't dis- I just still don't really agree because if you built yourself a shelter on Vancouver Island in the year 1200, it'd be reasonably likely that a group of Haida would just come and take it from you and take everything you have and take you as a slave because, you know, that's what they did. They were like there's 
great and beautiful things about that culture, but like lots of um, First Nation tribes took slaves and they were did raids and like because they were so um, efficient at catching game and there's just a very lush environment right you can go get mussels and stuff from the ocean like so that person actually didn't have any appeals to that they couldn't they couldn't appeal and saying well this is actually crown land they were just captured and tortured and used as a slave um was it crown land though like when we look at the origins of like treaties and i mean i'm not what i mean is like right now if you just went into the woods and set up your tent um yeah you you can't do that Tent City tried to do that in the Goldstream Park. Um, they tried to do mm-hmm. it above Goldstream Park, and they were consistently just chased out because, you know, you can't technically camp there yeah, and yeah. whatnot. There is, like, there's lots of places in Canada that are considered crown land where you can put up a tent. I think the rule, and I, I, I might be wrong, but I believe the rule is that you can stay for two weeks on crown land, and then you have to move your site every two weeks. But there's plenty of, like, obscure places where you could way overstay your welcome. But when you overstay that welcome, you're not going to be raped and attacked. You're going to be like some bureaucrat is going to come there and say, you're going to have to leave. Now, if you if you don't, eventually you're going to be either thrown in jail or, or killed. Like that's unfortunately, that's like what the government does when you don't listen to them. But I would rather have that than, you know, be alone in 1200 on Vancouver Island. Um, I don't I don't think it's necessarily... I'm not even saying it's necessarily better or worse, but it's it's just always been the case is that there's not never you don't have a right to set up a, a shelter on Vancouver Island anywhere because it can just be taken from you. Yeah, um, unfortunately, that is very true. I outside of my apartment complex, there is a sign on the park which has one bench and a bunch of trees, and it just says no sheltering. Yeah, what that small park is used for besides my dog shitting in it. <laughs> not too sure yeah. um but people aren't allowed to put shelters there um and i do think like, obviously rights the concept of a right is a human invention yeah um, and I, sh- I should backtrack i i think i was a little bit too i do think it's good to have like some universal things in society that we all say you know what people should have should we should do our best to make sure people get these things i I think it's, I'm, I'm kind of picking on that word and being a bit semantic there, Mm -hmm. Um, but anyway, sorry, go on. Um, no, that's, that is entirely correct because yeah, my understanding of it is if you were able to do these things before, um, I don't know, serfdom or, um, late wage labor and it's, which Something like what that, kind of thing? Like setting up a shelter? Yeah. Um, but when could what what place and time could you ever set up a shelter and just expect to be free from persecution? Okay, depends on what type of persecution. Because I mean, there's all sorts of type of, of persecution that from people having like, everything you own stolen and being taken into slavery. Um, where exactly? Like any place, any time. I mean. I feel like this is getting like very abstract and But that's kind of what I'm saying is that like we we have a structure now and signs in this official ways that we don't let people just set up tents anywhere they want, but it's always been the case that people can't just set up where they want and expect expect not expect that outside influence are going to interact with them. Well, I mean, okay, so yes, there's always been threats to people's livelihoods whether it is 
the police officer coming and taking down your tent or whether it's a saber tooth tiger coming and ripping apart your mm-hmm. um or coming into your cave and eating you um but that being said it's different to look at you know i would say natural threats that are just part mm-hmm. of living on earth as opposed to things that become like almost ridiculous like taking down someone's tent because there's a sign there that says that you can't shelter when you're not really harming anybody. There's nothing really. And also there are pretty viable solutions. I was talking about like specifically a human threat, like in the case of Vancouver Island where we're, where we're living, it'd be the Haida, like which had, you know, raiding parties. Um, And, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to condemn them because like, I just don't know enough about that culture to fully comment on, I think, yeah. Like, so in, in Europe, there would be like warlords, like the Vikings would basically go take what you had. And like Africa, like all, all cultures had these like, like humanities full of like blood and horror and like things that we can hardly even conceptualize, um, unless you've been to some of these countries that still live and die by the sword. Um, so that's- yeah, that's kind of where it's like, it's to me, it's kind of, it's artificial to say that there was once this ability to just live and not be, not be bothered by society or human beings because it's, it's, I don't think it's really ever existed. Certainly not supported. Like if you just set up your tent and, um, and on Vancouver Island, nobody like, you know, set up a little stick shelter, nobody would feed you. Nobody would take care of you. You'd have to do whatever is required to nourish yourself and sustain yourself um, and then hope that nobody found where you're living and took what you had. Yeah, there's always, I mean, been an external threat due to like, you know, lack of resources. This is like the one time I'm going to say like, God bless technology, not the one time, but God bless technology because mm-hmm. we are fortunate to have an abundance of resources um, enough and more than enough to meet our needs, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I mean, are there always going to be greedy people? I think I I'm gonna say yes, but I think for sure, yeah. It's also to a, a again a, a culture of extreme wealth hoarding that you know we owe our current concept of greed. But let's go back to the um, to Vikings and whatnot, right? Like mm-hmm. it's either for land or it's for I don't know, maybe land to like rights to hunt on that land and whatnot. Either way, I'm not saying you're never going to be bothered by anybody. I'm just saying that people did have the ability to have a piece of land that they were able to you know, set up their tent. Like, I'm not saying the second, like, you know, you set up your little tent, you set up your little shelter, no one can ever bother you because mm-hmm. that's your right kind of thing. I'm just saying there was less obstacles um to providing for yourself in that sense. And there are currently, mm-hmm. does that kind of make sense? I understand. I totally understand what you're saying. If I can paraphrase, it's basically that in the past, it was easier for the average human being to take ownership of a piece of land and take what they needed out of that land to provide for themselves in an abundant and their families in an abundant sort of way. Yeah, and I'm not talking about like 300 years ago where you couldn't own land if you were a woman. Like I'm talking about mm-hmm. much farther in the past before these systems were developed and entrenched into our mm-hmm. lifestyle. Like hunter-gatherer culture. More so, honestly, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, that's it's hard to take it back that far because I mean, yeah, we have we obviously don't have yeah we went histories way of off. those, but uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, we should probably get back onto uh, back onto drugs where we <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, to kind of like to bring it back, um, we talked about a lot of the um, the obstacles to providing these services and like my you know my kind of BS and you know what the financial problems are with having like a theoretical non-limit but to bring it back to kind of reality and where you've been working um you know what are some of the best programs that have been tried on a small scale and you're excited about being introduced like at a larger scale like either locally or federally here oh okay well um i think the most exciting would be clinics like crosstown clinic um in Vancouver, it's just outside of Vancouver, that do prescription heroin for people. Um, because I think the the solution, the antidote to the overdose, overdose crisis is providing a safe supply of drugs for people. So mm-hmm. yeah, we both agree that drugs should be legalized. They should yeah. certainly be regulated because it's only with prohibition that they're adulterated. I mean, like, you know, we had a glass of wine, but we don't have to worry about fentanyl being in that yeah, wine, yeah. right? Um, I don't have to worry about my weed being weird when I buy it from yeah. a dispensary. And even if you, like, fentanyl is so cheap that if fentanyl was legal, you know, people would buy it from sources that had a reputation of, you know, not not killing people. So you'd, yeah, you'd still, like... Yeah, there'd be a measured dose. Yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd, like, just like now when you take an aspirin, you take one aspirin, it's the power of one aspirin. You don't sometimes take Never an aspirin and it. have like 10x your dose. And then sometimes it doesn't have an effect. Like Entirely. these things are really well done um, because they have high-end precision machines. Whereas it's when it's a baggie from China that comes up and is cut up by a bunch of, you know, assholes that don't really care about their clientele and are just making a quick buck, then that's where we have all these problems. So I, I think that like something like that, I would go like 90% of to where you are. I, I think that these things should be totally legal and just let the free market decide the pricing in terms of like, I think that would actually drive the price so far below street value for some of the things like like opioids, um, like fentanyl for one, um, that you know we wouldn't have the poverty issues that we do now associated with those. But- no, um, certainly not. And I think so, you know, there's this like kind of myth that people can't function well on heroin, but mm-hmm. that's not true at all. I mean, you completely can. People yeah. were taking heroin, so or like heroin and morphine derivatives um, and going about their daily lives. Yeah. Like, they still do today, but I mean, in a large scale, like prescription kind of way, um, like 120 years ago. My understanding of it was, is like, if somebody's addicted to heroin, it's almost better if you were their employer, it's almost better to have them at work when they're on heroin than not. Because like, you know, at a certain point, if you become addicted and you're taking fairly large doses, a small dose of heroin actually brings you back to normal. It, it, your body is a, so adapt. That's why it's so addicting, right? Is your body mm-hmm. adapts and that becomes kind of your homeostasis is like it needs the heroin just to function. Yeah. And that's why withdrawal is so um, problematic. But I, you know, there are people who are along their um, substance youth path, like I would say like so, so deeply that, um, yeah, it, it, they function and perform a lot better while on drugs. Um, mm-hmm. but that being said, uh, going back to programs that I think are, you know, super Most exciting and yeah. yeah, I think being able to prescribe individuals what they need so they mm-hmm. can, you know, you're spending all day worrying about being dope sick. You have to 
um, like prohibition causes things like violence and like petty crimes and like property crimes because like you need to mm-hmm. steal in order to like get your yeah. fix as opposed you to you can't think long term you, you just have to focus you cannot on yeah things, like yeah. when you're trying just just to survive you don't have like the, the everyday isn't kind of a long term it's just like i need to get my next hit so i don't get dope sick and yeah. that's it right as opposed to having a little pill bottle by your night table and just taking you know one in the morning one in the afternoon these programs have shown Mm -hmm. decrease in excessive substance use um and then other things that i just like i'm excited about and i wish i could see in like more of like a large scale yeah would be safe consumption sites Mm -hmm. everywhere yeah um and what does a safe consumption site look like i've never been to one it's very like medically sterile looking where there's just like this mirror and a light so you can see your veins just like a single room no, you can't. They're, like, oh, no, they're they're like stalls. Okay. Um. So like you know you sit down at the chair and there's like you know like panels and then like the next because you know you can't like can't sell in them so you can't have like connection to the next person. Oh right. Yeah. When you're using, um. But then they also have places like chill zones where people can go and hang out. Just you know they should stay there for about ten to fifteen minutes after they use to ensure they're not going to overdose and they leave. Um. Mm. And, and like, that's supervised to make sure people aren't using in that. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure you can't use in that area, but, um, a a nurse will be there to attend to people. I think my personal issue with safe consumption sites is that they are too medical and people don't want to go to them. Mm -hmm. It sounds awful. Yeah. It sounds really lame. Like I would much rather like shoot up in a friend's home than go and shoot up at some both. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. Then, then going to this like kind of very like highly surveilled and it's not the people who run safe consumption sites from the people that i've met are you know wonderful and they're yeah. usually peers and people who have lived experience so they're not you know mean and judgy but at the same time i've actually met people who are kind of crappy who work at safe consumption sites and you know they're usually the people who got into it through healthcare or through um like health administration and management right and it makes for an unwelcoming environment i mean the point mm-hmm. of drug use is for a lot of people i'm gonna say pleasure right so if you're kind of taking that out of the equation Oh, do you think it's more pleasure or coping? Because like in my mind, those, those, you wouldn't go to one of those safe sites if you're looking to like have fun. It's like you're going, if you're trying to cope with your addiction. But that does bring immediate like pleasure, right? Like you shoot up, you're like, okay, there we go. Like mm. you're good now kind of thing. Um, okay. And it, it doesn't have to be one or the other, right? Like Fair enough, it yeah. makes sense that you cope with something that's positive and enjoyable for yourself. Totally. Yeah. Um, I see your point there. Yeah. So kind of erasing that from the equation and making it so medical, I think. Um, but that comes with this idea that like, if it's too cool, people are going to want to go there all the time. But like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think that's not really, I mean, like if safe consumption sites were bumping and they had like good music and food, like, would you want to go there? Mm, I know what you mean. And I, I totally agree if it was like a closed loop, but the problem is if it was too cool, it would attract people that wouldn't otherwise be using, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and I'm not saying it should become like a bar. Yeah, you know what I mean. I'm, I'm saying that it should just be a lot more um, comfortable, mm-hmm. as opposed to what I see now. But that has nothing to do with the individuals who set up these sites and whatnot. Yeah, they're it's doing just, the best they can, probably. Yeah, they're Most working them, within yeah. you know the policy constraints um, and the government fear that if this is an enjoyable place people will want to come and 
do drugs there. So, so what's the main, like what's getting in the way of doing these, like this program that you first mentioned where it's like prescribing, um, I think you used, um, heroin as an example to people and you basically have like your, it's okay. Um, your (laughs) bottle of, of, uh, of pills of heroin and you just take them as you need. I guess the risk would, fear would be somebody would sell them a Mm -hmm. or b do too much of them and then come back and then i guess that's the fear i'm assuming yeah um it is and they're (laughs) sorry (coughs) that doesn't tend to be the case um people use them and i mean at this point it's really um and why not actually like why people who like why don't more people that are just and maybe they at the early stages of drug use and are just looking to get high. Why don't they sign up for these programs? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, all good. Why are people... Oh, yeah. What I was saying is, uh, like, why... How do they screen people out that are... Like, that aren't just looking to, like, abuse these programs? How do they How do they make sure that they're not... Um, they're, they're really quite regulated. Um, this is for, like, at least at the Crosstown Clinic, my understanding is that it's only people who have been on methadone, Suboxone, and there's another one that I can never pronounce that starts with a B, um, mm-hmm. and it doesn't work for them. Yeah. So they use this prescription heroin. Right. So they've already been through a program where they're trying to get off. Yeah. Um, yeah. It also, I mean, I'm saying in an ideal world, they get to take home their pills. It's not really how it works. I know from okay. methadone that you have to show up there every single morning. Every morning, you got to pee in a cup to show that you weren't on heroin, and then you get your methadone. Hmm. So, I mean, obviously. Because they're worried about people abusing methadone. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't really happen. I mean, I think I've I've seen a very quick antidote of somebody um like they'll sell methadone um but i think that's less of an abuse to get high and more i would say like in a legal framework an abuse because you're selling a substance that you're not supposed to be selling mm-hmm. um but it's for people who have maybe used heroin but wouldn't get their methadone dose because they've used heroin but still need the methadone to maintain that continuum of getting off of drugs yeah people slip up right so mm-hmm. yeah yeah, um, I think that is a little overregulated and unfair. I don't think you should deny treatment to somebody. I mean, someone had once said that drug addiction is the only disease, and I say disease with little finger quotes because I personally don't think it's a disease. I think it's like a social response. But it's the only disease that you um, punish people for showing symptoms of. Mm-hmm. So you don't get your methadone if you use heroin. But what are you trying to do with the methadone it's to get people off of heroin right and drug abuse sorry drug use is kind of like it's a really entrenched habit into somebody so Mm -hmm. punishing them for acting on that is you know really problematic and i don't think i think it's more value-laden than it is an actual healthcare response yeah i mean that's where you and i completely agree i don't i don't understand why i mean i understand why based on the history that that drugs are illegal and i i still think there's a lot of things in our society that are kind of like that like people don't people feel uncomfortable or feel some sort of like mother complex to protect other people from things they think are wrong or i don't even know if it's like a <laughs> yeah well even something like like gay marriage for example like i do not understand why 
anybody has a problem with gay marriage. Like, yeah, totally. It's like, it'd be one thing if they were coming into your house and forcing you to gay marry them, but I've never heard of that. Like, I've never <laughs> no, heard I... of like roving bands of, of homosexuals <laughs> that force you to marry them. Um, exactly. If that was the case, then I would be against gay marriage. Like, I don't want, but that's just, that's it's not the case. It's like, it's like, it's a, it's a strange thing where it's like, well, that, I don't like that. So you shouldn't be allowed to do it. Um, yeah. And I think the same thing is for drugs. Like, it's like, even if you disagree with it, like who, you know, you're given one life, that person's given one their life, they're making decisions. And who are you to get in the way of that? Um, I think people over like exaggerate the harms of drugs. Most people who use drugs don't become addicted to them. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, like there are plenty of people every single day who use, I don't know, a range of Illegal drugs. or legal drugs, yeah. Yeah, um, and they're not addicted to it. So the idea of being like, you can't use drugs, and if we, you know, if you use heroin, you don't get methadone because, like, yeah. you know, you're still doing this behavior. We're not going to give you clean syringes because we're enabling you. It's a really fundamental misunderstanding of addiction and mm-hmm. drug use itself. Yeah. And it comes from these old age narratives of the just say no and you know drug uses associated with like a morally decrepit population mm-hmm. whether it be people of color or whether it be um people who are anti-war or you know the phrase dirty hippies is a real phrase and i thought yeah, that- they really are dirty <laughs> No, I mean, I thought that way about ravers for so long. I was like, oh, gross, sweaty ravers. Like, they look checked out. And these are all these internalized messages that I've been getting. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. until exposing myself to these people, like, regularly and not just kind of knowing about them in a lore kind of sense Mm -hmm. that I realized that there is absolutely nothing wrong with wanting to alter your conscious. Okay, yeah, you get sweaty. I get sweaty when I drink. So, you know what I mean? Like, I kind of, I, I, it was over-exaggerating the characteristics and the harms associated with this particular drug use that I just picked up from popular culture without really critically thinking about where it came from. Well, alcohol is one of the most harmful and addicting drugs out there, right? It is hands down the most harmful drug. I think it's the only one, like one of the only, um, like, like substances of abuse that you can die from withdrawal, right? Um, I've heard that, yes. Um, But it, I mean, it's harmful and... So many other ways to um, just like, I, I think I've saw a recent statistic that more people still die of alcohol related illnesses than people who die of um, overdoses in Canada yearly on average. Hmm. I can um, see that. Yeah. yeah. Although maybe, maybe the fentanyl overdose crisis is quite extreme. No, that still. Is, yeah. Even still. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I think there was um, last year 4,500, almost. Is it alcohol-related desks? Like in, in, yes, so yeah, like okay. heart disease like, and oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, that kind of stuff. Like drunk driving and all that stuff taken into account. I think also, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not just people choking on their vomit. Like yeah. That's like the kind of typical or alcohol-induced like, death, right? Yeah. Um, but, oh, also the substance itself isn't very harmful. Like our, our example of meth, I mean, people take that daily, right? Like people take amphetamines every day to study so what is this like you know you i don't actually know like when you see people with like meth scabs like is that some like what does that mean is that um like i've heard of that like crystal meth i don't know if that's just like a 
like a stereotype, but I mean, you definitely see it. Like you don't have to walk far in downtown yeah. Victoria to see um, people like that. But there are tons of other illnesses that are related to poverty. So people say like, um, meth equals really bad teeth, right? Mm-hmm. Actually doing methamphetamine has like zero uh, impact on your teeth. It's, it's just, just that people... Poverty's bad for your teeth. Poverty's yeah. bad for your teeth. And yeah. people who are addicted to meth tend to be impoverished. Right. Um, because and the people that aren't impoverished and addicted to amphetamines... Have great probably, teeth. Have, probably have great teeth and yeah, oh, fair enough. Oh, it's very And you don't know true. they're addicted to amphetamines. Exactly, right? Yeah. So people act like if you're, you know on meth people can totally tell and you're just this weird like tweaking and like well that happens i mean i've also seen people take a lot of dexedrine and act kind of weird as well right mm-hmm. um and that like not to say that that's like problematic but i'm saying like talking fast and being like erratic and that those kind of things that we assume i think depending on how the individual looks like if you have bad teeth and like scabs on your face from again probably living in poverty you see that and you're just like, oh, meth tweaking as opposed to friends of mine who have been on like dexedrine and talking really, really quickly. And you just kind of think maybe that, that they're just like this. So there's this other visual, I would say, factors that like kind of build off of these preconceived notions of a meth head or um, other types of drug users that influence how we perceive them depending on their social location. Yeah. Okay. And so what do you, like what kind of what kind of things do you think the average person could do? And actually, I'll split this into two parts. Like, what perceptions should the average person change about the homeless and these people in this cycle of addiction? Like, what would be like if you could kind of sum it up? How do you think people look at that problem incorrectly? I think people realize or I think people see it as an individual problem, Um when it's not, I mean, again, I feel like I haven't done a very good job of articulating it. So maybe I'll, I'll try to sum it up now. But there's a lot of factors that play a role in someone's life that you, depending on who you are, aren't aware of, mm-hmm. right? So, like you may live a very sheltered life and have no idea how certain things come into play mm-hmm. to um, create homelessness or drug addiction or uh, poverty. Yeah. Um And I think people also need to educate themselves on the origin of drug laws to see, I mean, I think school should do this, but um, basically to see how drug laws aren't based on pharmacological or social harms. They're based on racist perceptions of individuals who were using these substances as much as white people were, but you go after people who have less resources when you want to make something illegal, mm-hmm. right? Like you're not going to go after people who can like actually fight that law because, well, why would you bother then? Um, and then I well, also and it just like, I think, I mean, one thing that I think like a lot of conservatives would agree as well as liberals is like, if you make something that everybody does illegal, now all of a sudden you can arrest whoever you want. Yes. And no, but you can re- arrest. Well, that's that's kind of what I mean. Is like, like, let's just say, um, you made teeth brushing illegal. It's like, well, now you can arrest any black person because they brush their teeth. Oh yes, and that's entirely. So, so you can yeah. just you can do any racist thing you want or any prejudiced thing you want. So now that's something like, you know, I I have concerned about when they try to make something that is like genuinely done by the population, genu generally done illegal. Like speeding, for example, I have a problem with that. It's like generally people drive 10 kilometers over the speed limit, Mm -hmm. but 
you don't get arrested if you drive 10 over. But it gives the discretion of the police officer. Decide who like, he wants to arrest. He can just arrest whoever he wants. Yeah, entirely, and yes. That's, that's crazy to me. It should be set at a reasonable thing. And if you're going one or two over, then you, you should be like pulled over. Like, I mean, not that everybody should be pulled over, but it's like we should have the speed limit set at such a such a speed such that like it's it's silly to go over it and that I, you know what I, mean? I don't i don't think this is good now that people kind of have to use their personal judgment of how far over the speed limit because everybody is susceptible to arrest now mm-hmm. that's a pretty minor things all things considered but that's kind of like what i'm getting at is if yeah. smoking marijuana is illegal now the government has the power to arrest anybody and i think that's kind of like basically what you had summed up earlier is when you said um, they had these populations like Vietnam War protesters that they wanted to, you know, you can't make protesting illegal. It's a lot mm-hmm. harder to, but if they're all smoking pot, then you can make that illegal and arrest whoever you want. Yeah. So I, I definitely agree with like restricting the government's power to like exercise non-discretionary violence. Against yeah. like, you know, people's bodily autonomy. Um, mm-hmm. Also, I mean, cannabis, I think it was like 1969 where they lessened the sentence because so many white people were trying cannabis that they were like, oh, crap, like we can't make this illegal because or like if we if we keep up with our harsh like um, penalties for this, then we're going to have to jail a lot of white people. We can't do that. Right. Like that. And that's why <laughs> that's, that's where I think we have a difference in like how we perceive how government works. No, that's genuinely it... what they did. Like it's well documented that because of the increasing <laughs> rates of um white people going to prison. I mean, this is 1969. You could be a lot more overtly racist at this point. Um, But yeah, so they um, lightened up the sentence so people weren't going to jail. Hmm. I swear, I pinky promise. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I I struggled. I I hope that it wasn't in those same terms, but if you're right, that's pretty terrible. Yeah. Um, And so, so kind of the second part of the question first was like, um, how people should change their perspectives or how they could change their perspective. What do you think people could do, whether it's lobbying for these programs to be changed, um, voting or actually volunteering, like kind of the stuff you do, like, what do you think is the most impactful thing that a citizen could do to help out these people that are, you know, in these you know cycles of abuse or just, you know, um, pushed to the side by the system? Um, I think recognizing their inherent humanity and treating them with dignity is like probably the most meaningful thing. Okay. Um, I think talking to other people about like, if you've learned anything from this to talk to people about what you've learned, um, other than that, I'd love to say like, you should volunteer, but at the same time, like if you hold really harmful beliefs, I don't think you should be around, um, (laughs) that population, (laughs) uh, just as an act of violence towards them. Um, but you think people would be like really offended by the things that I talk about? Like do you th- having this conversation, do you think if certain people in this community heard me speaking would be, would it would anger them to think like when I talk about these kind of like ideas of personal responsibility and limited economic availability? <coughs> I'm going to say um, yes and no. I feel like a lot of people tend to beat themselves up for where they like end up in life. Um, but at the same time, I know plenty of them and I can't talk about like people who use substances. I mean, homeless people has like a homogenous population, Yeah, for but sure. um, I think they would think that you are quite ignorant of the realities of the forces that play in their life. Um, I'm sure some people would be ragefully angry, but I think yeah. um, most recognize that as a misunderstanding of kind of 
what people in their position in the world endure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, that's where we kind of like, we agree as well. Because like generally, when I talk to people who are at this like you know at least perceptively like this like pretty low state, they do take a lot of personal responsibility for that. And I think that's that's a I actually think that's a good thing, even though if it's harmful at the time, it's like personal responsibility is the way that they're going to get out. Even if it's through a program like, um, you know, applying for this like thing that you mentioned, uh, what was that? It was like basically getting, you know, your heroin as a prescription. Oh, yeah. That takes some personal responsibility on that human being. Like as a society, you know, if we accept like limited resources, we can't go find every single person that's like buying heroin off a dealer and has all these problems. Like, hey, we'll just give this to you for free. Like we don't have the resources available to hire people to do that. Some At some point it has to be left to the individual to say like, Hey man, like, come on, we have this program set up. Um, and I guess like that kind of conduits to my last question, like what advice would you give to somebody who is in an addictive cycle, whether they're homeless or not, what are the best resources that that person can utilize to help, you know, break themselves out of that cycle? Um, I would say uh, just to answer this question, um, the most important thing is, you know, keeping yourself alive. So using harm reduction sites. Um, that being mm-hmm. said, though, like you said that we don't have like the money to be able to go and do this. I mean, outreach mm-hmm. workers are a huge core to, and I mean, that's kind of like where, um, like a core to harm reduction social movement yeah. because you want to literally meet people where they're at, right? And right. when you're spending literally all day, like these people live in a cultural periphery almost. Like sometimes you can be so removed from the daily happenings of what the rest of the world is because your street life is so much more different than, um, you know, someone who doesn't have that. It's kind of like, it's hard to reintegrate into that. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. I've heard this one thing about, uh, like depression and like desperation in general in that your time horizon shrinks. So if you're not depressed and very healthy, you can plan in the future 20 years like you say oh maybe here or like like that's somebody that's extremely doing well as so they can think and set up for retirement to this up but as you get more and more desperate your ability to project into the future shrinks to the point where if you're at a you know say you're suffering from horrifying debilitating ptsd you can look about 30 seconds into the future like you're just trying to get through the next 30 seconds so i can imagine like kind of what you're saying is mm-hmm. that these people on the street who have this like systemic oppression and you know that they can't project so far into the future that they can't it's hard for them to actually go and seek out these programs which might you know see a benefit in two to three weeks they just want to well like you said they just kind of trying to stay alive and it's it's not even that but like it takes resources to find resources mm-hmm. right so you already have to have the ability to um access a computer or know where these sites are to go there mm-hmm. um to go find more resources right like you can throw pamphlets as much as you want yeah um but at the same time i understand the difficulty of not wanting to go to these places just because of how poorly people have been treated stigma is actually one of the biggest barriers of um accessing these services because we would love to believe that the people providing these services don't have harmful you know views of people in this situation but like unfortunately that is not true right And a lot of people, um, you know, when you're already in such a vulnerable state, 
one negative experience, two negative, three negative experiences, like that's kind of enough to keep you away from feeling, from wanting to go back somewhere. Even if you think like, okay, well, I talked to this person just to get through it so I can get to this program. Like you're also looking at this situation being like, okay, I just have to go dehumanize myself like for a little bit and then, you know, it'll be fine. And that's a really hard thing to do when you're constantly beaten down. Yeah. 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 I can see that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, um, is there anything else you wanted to, to mention about harm reduction and, you know, your work in this field? Um, I do want to say that everybody should get trained in naloxone, mm. um, on Vancouver Island in Victoria. There are almost regular, um, kind of group events like if you go to uvic you can do it at the wellness center uh kool-aid offers um training sessions i believe aids vancouver island also offers training sessions okay Um, yeah yeah i had that training through the fire hall the naloxone Mm. um training but one thing actually so there's lots of aeds everywhere and you can look at maps where various AEDs are stored in a building. What are is those it, AEDs? Oh, uh, automatic electronic defibrillator. So oh, it's yeah, like, yeah. you know, start restart your heart. So mm-hmm. those things are pretty easy to use because as soon as you turn them on, they actually have like verbal commands. It'll say like, step away, step away, and then like grab mm. left paddle, place it like, okay, you know, yeah, they're nice that way. Um, but with these kits, like if I were on the street and I saw somebody overdosing, I have the training to do that. But if I don't, have like what would what would you do if you if i just saw somebody overdose lying in the street how would i how would i what would be your next step i mean i carry naloxone kit in my backpack so, okay, so that's a good, i would good i would measure you know you just do that first of all <laughs> yeah. yeah um like i'm someone who would like i see people who are passed out and if i can't see the color of their face i give them a gentle little nudge i'm like mm-hmm. hey and they're just like oh fine i'm like okay good and then like move on with yeah, my life yeah. but if you know if they're not nudging and you see their face is purple um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, we, in BC, we don't have the, the intranasal sprays. We have the actual syringes. And like, I personally find them super easy to use. You just have to make sure all the liquid is in the bottom part of the vial. You flick that little bit mm-hmm. off and then you, you know, kind of suction the liquid yeah, in yeah. and then just stem. The th- like, I also have an EpiPen who I've had to like administer to myself personally. So I feel like um, I'm a little bit more equipped in that yeah, sense. Yeah. Um, I with, think like most people with a cup, with an hour of training can, can not, deliver. It's like 20 minutes. Yeah. You just have um, to carry it on you. That's the thing. Like, and sometimes... So, yeah. That was, I guess what you're saying is not to try to take the training and then find a random one and hope that there's a public one available. It's like, oh, take God, the no. training and carry it. Yes. Yeah. Definitely take the training, carry it. Um, and it's important, too, to be able to display it somewhere visible. So I keep mine on the side of my backpack in case there is an overdose. Someone can approach me to be like, hey, there's someone overdosing like right, back right. in this alley, right? And then I would go there as opposed to like, it's just in my backpack and no one knows about it. And then I kind of just what expect to stumble upon an overdose, which I mean, obviously happens, but um, you want it visible mm-hmm. and also easily accessible. And I mean, if you didn't have an naloxone kit, but you knew how to deliver it, would it be reasonable to search the person to see if they had one? Do a lot of these people carry a kit if they're using drugs? Is that common? Oh my God. Yeah. The people, yeah. like I find people who use drugs to be the most like responsible people when it comes to naloxone. I mean, we're at yeah. a point in this crisis now where so many people have lost a lot of their friends and family that you just don't want to risk it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, unfortunately very fear motivated, but um, something that I find like, and that's what I like. That is a level of personal responsibility for sure that people have like in fear of you're not going to stop using because your life circumstances haven't changed. However, at least you can make sure that 
you're not going to die or your friend yeah. isn't going to die. Um, I mean, they're, they're quite big. So I feel like if they had it, it would be visible. Yeah. It's um, about the size of, uh, like a old, like a remote control. Like, yeah. Kit, like they're, I think the ones I've seen are blue and they have like a cross on them usually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, they're about the size of like, yeah. TV remote. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's a great message. People take the training, buy an naloxone kit. No, it's free. Um, you don't have to buy it. Oh, you don't like, have to buy you it. You literally just go up to the pharmacy and unfortunately they still make you do the 50 minute wait because they do charge it to the government. Okay. But, um, yeah, it's entirely free. Um, you can ask the pharmacist how to administer it. Um, I don't think all pharmacists are like well trained and you know to be able to give mm-hmm. it uh, to give that training like on the spot. But they yeah. but they worst know case, enough. You can find to... a video on YouTube or whatever. And yeah, I mean it's pretty super... straightforward. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Very cool. Okay, mm-hmm. and I know you have a you have a Twitter handle. Uh... Yeah. Um. So if you're interested in anything that I have said and want to know more about this, I do tweet about this at l i l b b y a c e d m i c. Awesome. Okay. Thanks so much, Stephanie. I really appreciate you coming on. Sorry um, that it turned into more of a discussion rather than just me learning from you, but I I hope that people take something out of this. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks. I hope you guys enjoyed the back and forth with Stephanie. Uh, I'm really curious to hear feedback on this one. Stephanie and I, we differ so much ideologically. I had trouble getting down to the substance of her knowledge in homelessness and addiction. I think I was focused too much um, as an interviewer on where we differed and, and not in getting getting to the uh, to the specific experiences of the people that she's dealt with in these at-risk populations. So um, anyway, yeah, I, I'd really I'm, I'm curious to hear if you if you liked that back and forth, if you liked that critical analysis of where she was coming from, or if you would prefer that if I kind of just ignored those differences and focused on extracting, you know, the kind of substance of Stephanie's knowledge in this uh, in this field. I want to continue to bring on experts and and really try to get information out of them and and help, you know, myself and you guys as the audience learn from people that are particularly knowledgeable in uh in an area such as uh drug use and homelessness so let me know what you thought of uh of our podcast there um hit me up on twitter or email email is contrapodcast at gmail.com and my twitter is at contra underscore podcast thanks so much for listening